In my early days, I faced a pivotal moment in my career. Instead of following the herd into traditional finance, I charted my own course. Despite skepticism, I founded my investment firm driven by a belief in economic truth and fiscal responsibility. Through perseverance, I established myself as a leading voice in finance, proving that sometimes blazing your own path is the best way to succeed. To get what you want, sometimes you have to challenge the status quo and blaze your own trail. That's what Harry's did. Seeing people tricked by expensive razors, Harry's took a stand. Instead of pricey options, they offer high-quality razors at a fraction of the cost. That's why when it comes to grooming my face, I use Harry's. Harry's understands the value of quality without breaking the bank. Their razors provide a smooth shave every time, and their shaving gel leaves my skin feeling refreshed and moisturized. So don't settle for the status quo. Blaze your own trail with Harry's. Get started with a $13 trial set for just $3 at harrys.com gold. That's harrys.com gold for a $3 trial set. Let's talk finance. Wouldn't it be convenient to have all your investment and retirement accounts in one spot? Yahoo Finance does just that. It consolidates your portfolio views and offers expert analysis, making it easier to manage your investments. Let's not beat around the bush. You want to grow your portfolio, fight inflation, pay off debts, and achieve financial freedom. Yahoo Finance provides the news, data, and tools to make that happen. You may think you've covered all the bases, savings, researching, and investing smartly. But to truly excel, you need Yahoo Finance in your corner. A holistic perspective is crucial for success, and Yahoo Finance ensures you have it. With a massive community of over 90 million users monthly, Yahoo Finance is here to guide you on your path to financial success. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. The Peter Schiff Show. Well, all the major U.S. stock markets were down on the week, but not by as much as I thought. When we got that big drop on the Monday, when we got the very bad reaction to even better than expected earnings, plus with interest rates rising, I thought we would have had more selling, but we didn't. We actually rallied back. Uh, Most of the week from the big Monday decline, not enough to recover all of the losses, but the the total losses on the week were not that bad. The Dow was down today, actually, by about 11 points, but the Nasdaq eked out a small gain, as did the S&P 500. You know, interest rates were moving up. In fact, the yield on the 10-year on Wednesday hit 3.03%. 5%. So this is the highest it's been since before the financial crisis. And I think one of the reasons that the stock market recovered a bit this week was because investors breathed a sigh of relief that the yield didn't stay above 3%. I mean, we closed above 3% on that Monday. I think it was 3.024. But then we dropped on Thursday and dropped again on Friday. We went out at 2957 And that's only a slight increase from the 2.951 that yields closed at the prior week. But I think the markets are uh, lulling in a false sense of security if they think that it's just one and done. That, oh, we finally took out 3%, maybe we cleared out some stops and that's it. You You know, yields have peaked, so there's nothing to worry about. As I said on my last podcast, even if this is the peak, 
I think it's already high enough to do significant damage to the economy, uh, to the financial markets, to U.S. government finances, but it's not the peak. I mean, we've barely begun to rise, and I think rates are going a lot higher. But higher rates did continue to support the dollar. The dollar actually had a strong week. The dollar index closed up just over 1% on the week. It was down slightly today, so we surrendered uh, some gains early this morning, but it was still an up week for the dollar. Again, I think those people who are buying the dollar are going to lose a lot of money if they don't turn around and sell. Uh, I think this is a sucker rally. I think, as I said in my last podcast, uh, rising bond yields are not bullish for the dollar. And uh, people who think that are mistaken. Gold also off, I think, about 10 bucks or so on the week. Positive today, 6 or $7, but down on the week. Silver had a much uh, weaker week. I think it was down a little over 50 cents. So higher rates taking a little bit of a toll on uh, gold and silver. GDX was up, but the juniors, the GDXJ was down. But it wasn't that big of a move. I would expect, though, to see bigger moves in these stocks to the upside once we can make some headway in the price of gold. But still not quite there. Market's still uh, very complacent and reacting to rising rates. Uh, rather than focusing on what rising rates actually means for the economy and what rising rates might say about the confidence that investors have in the U.S. dollar, uh, in the U.S. economy. Uh, Instead, they're just taking a more myopic approach and just missing the forest for the trees. Let me get to some of the economic data that came out today. We got the uh, first estimate for Q1 GDP. And remember, When uh, they were first coming out with their estimates, remember the Atlanta Fed came out in January and had an estimate of 5.4% for Q1 GDP. And they they got a lot of headlines. A lot of people were talking about it. I immediately said that it was crazy, that there's no way they were going to have to come way down. And of course, they did come way down. But we got the number today. And this is the first estimate, so it's probably going to be revised. But we got 2.3%. So that's better than the 2% we were looking for. But if you actually look at nominal GDP, nominal GDP came in pretty much in line because what happened was the deflator that the government uses to adjust the nominal GDP to make it real, right? The deflator is supposed to capture the inflation because they don't want to show a GDP that's up because of inflation. They want to get real economic growth, not inflation. And so they subtract out what they claim the inflation rate is. And the estimate was for uh, the deflator to be 2.4, right? But instead it was 2.0. And so using a 2.0 deflator, they got a GDP of 2.3. Had the deflator been 2.4, then the GDP would have been 1.9. So the reason the GDP was greater than expected is because the government wants us to believe that inflation was lower than expected. Now, I don't believe that for a minute. In fact, I I think it's probably higher than the 2.4% that they were looking for. So I don't believe this number at all. You know, especially if you look at the consumer spending portion of it, which, of course, it doesn't drive real economic growth, but it's an important number for the GDP. And consumer spending was at a five-year low. Now, why would that be? I mean, if we have such a low rate of unemployment, in fact, we got the Uh, the weekly unemployment claims that came out yesterday, I think it was another 49-year low 
in the number of people filing for unemployment claims. We got 4% unemployment, right? So we got all these people that have jobs, supposedly. We have very few people who don't have jobs, yet consumer spending is at a five-year low. I mean, why aren't all these employed people spending money? Right? And another thing that should cause you to, you know, maybe uh, blink an eye was the trade deficit numbers that came out earlier in the week. Now, the trade deficit was much smaller than expected. In fact, I think it was the first time in seven months that it didn't go up. It was hitting record high after record high after record high. And we finally got a number that was much lower than estimates, which is probably one of the reasons that we got the 2.3% number today on Q1 GDP. But if you look at the numbers, one of the reasons that we had a smaller than expected trade deficit was because we had a big drop in imports. Now, if people have jobs, why aren't they buying imported products? After all, pretty much all the products are imported, right? Americans can't spend unless we import, right? Because if Americans are buying things, chances are we had to import the stuff that they're buying. So the fact that imports are down and consumer spending is falling That makes sense now, right? Because consumers are spending less money and so we're importing less stuff because the stuff they buy is generally going to be imported. So if you have been counting on the consumer to lead the recovery, then a lot of bad news came out this week because the consumer just is not there. I mean, the consumer is broke despite the fact that he's employed, if you want to believe those numbers. Maybe they have too much debt uh, from buying stuff in the past that they couldn't afford and they use credit cards, or they bought cars they couldn't afford, or maybe their interest rate is going up. Maybe they have a home equity loan, or maybe they had an adjustable rate mortgage. People still have those, and interest rates are rising. Savings are at, you you know, near record lows, so people don't have the savings to spend. So there are a lot of things that would be weighing down on spending. Of course, maybe the employment picture is a a lot less rosy uh, than people think. Now, while I'm on the subject of employment, I got to talk about the latest proposal uh, from Senator Bernie Sanders. And I think this is actually a bill. I I can't imagine it's going to get that much support, uh, but who knows, right? But And Bernie Sanders, he's had a lot of dumb ideas in his career, right? But this one is probably the dumbest. And what Sanders wants to do is guarantee every American a job, right? The U.S. government is going to guarantee to employ any American who wants a job. And the salary is going to be $15 an hour. Now, I don't know, you know, if you can get higher than 15 or if 15 is just a floor or if everybody just gets 15. Uh, But $15 an hour uh, is going to be the pay and you're going to get benefits. And the benefits are health insurance. You're going to get vacations. You're going to get family medical leave, you know, All the bells and whistles that the uh, government or the Democrats think employees are entitled to, they're going to get all this stuff uh, from the government. Now, this is ridiculous, right? I mean, what an asinine idea. First of all, I mean, I'm assuming this only applies to people 18 years or older. I mean, I didn't really research all the fine, you know, points of this nonsense of a bill that's never going to pass. But the fact that Bernie Sanders, who is a U.S. senator, could propose such utter nonsense. I mean, we have senators that are basically complete ignoramuses when it comes to basic understanding of economics or the role of government. I mean, Bernie Sanders may be a socialist, but America is not a socialist country. This is a socialist concept that the government is going to employ everybody, right? But he's a U.S. senator. In fact, he could have been president. I mean, had the Democrats not rigged 
the, uh, the convention and the primaries, he would have been the nominee instead of Hillary Clinton. And he might have beaten Donald Trump. You know, a lot of those blue collar Democrats that voted for Trump, they probably wouldn't have crossed over if Bernie Sanders was on the top of the ticket. I mean, they like Sanders, right? He he's felt their pain, too. He was promising higher wages and protectionism, and he was against NAFTA, and he was, you know, he had a lot of the same stuff. Um, so he could have been president, a guy that thinks that, you know, the government should employ everybody and pay him $15 an hour. I mean, but think about how ridiculous this is. And I'm not going to get into all the ways this is ridiculous because, I mean, I don't want to do a podcast for, you know, 10, 20 hours, though I'm sure there's some of you who might actually listen to a podcast that long because there's so much wrong with this. I can go on and on endlessly to talk about it, but I'm just going to go over some of the more obvious, ridiculous points. First of all, I mean, we have today one of the lowest labor force participation rates in history. There are a lot of people that are not working, but according to this, if this bill were passed, all those people who are not working could show up at the government and demand their $15 an hour job. I mean, what are all these people going to do? I mean, a lot of these people have no skills. A lot of them probably can't even speak English. A lot of them are probably illiterate. Yet they're going to get $15 an hour plus benefits to do what? I mean, is the government going to train them? Who's going to provide the training? Are we going to pay them $15 an hour while they're getting trained? Right? I mean, is somebody going to assess everybody's potential to determine, you know, what type of job any particular person should do, right, when they just got to pay people $15 an hour? And first of all, we have to remember that the goal of an economy is not jobs. We don't want jobs just so people work. The goal is the production that is the product of those jobs, right? Jobs are a means to an end, right? So if the government hires a million people to dig ditches, and then another million people to fill the ditches back up again. Those are two million jobs, but we've got nothing to show for it. We've produced zero. So those jobs are a drain. We are wasting resources. We're wasting money. Nothing is being accomplished. So the goal isn't work. The goal is the productivity that is the byproduct, the consequence of that work. And how did jobs come into existence in a free market? Well, you have a businessman who is trying to satisfy certain needs and desires of its customers. And in order to do that, it needs to hire labor. And then it goes and bids for labor that will efficiently help it provide the goods and services that the market demands. Right. But the government doesn't do any of that. I mean, the government is going to hire people to do who knows what. I mean, there's no profit incentive. There's no market based information determining who should get hired and what should they be paid? You just have the government going to pay everybody $15 an hour. Now, first of all, you know, one of the reasons that people even show up for work, right, is because if they don't show up, they'll get fired, right? I mean, that's a big motivating factor for people to work. I mean, most people who have jobs don't have jobs because they enjoy the work, right? They, they have jobs because they, they, they want a house or an apartment and they need to get the rent money. They, they, they're hungry. They need to eat. So they need money to eat. They need clothes. They need medical care. They want entertainment, right? That's the stuff they want. They don't want the job. They just have to take the job in order to earn the money to get all the stuff that they actually want. Now, they know that if they don't do a good job, if they don't show up on time, well, they're going to get fired, right? So they have to they have to be punctual and they have to be good workers, right? But if you're working for the government and your job is guaranteed, I mean, do you even have to show up? They can't fire you. If they fire you, I mean, you're guaranteed a job. I mean, I don't know if there's anything in there that says if you ever get fired, then you never get a job again. If you have a guaranteed job, then you have a guaranteed job, no matter how shitty, you know, 
you do that work, right? You're gonna you're gonna get that job. So can you imagine, you know, the quality of the work that would be performed by workers who know that no matter what they do, they can't be fired? I mean, it's hard enough to fire somebody who's a member of a labor union, right? But firing somebody who's got a guaranteed job by the government, right? So this, I mean, this whole thing is unworkable. But if all the people who are now not in the labor force decided they wanted these $15 an hour jobs with benefits, I mean, maybe each, maybe it's like 35000 a year. I don't know what the total cost is of this package, but you've got tens of millions of people. You're talking about trillions of dollars of money. Where is this money going to come from? to pay all these workers to do who knows what. Then think about the impact that this is going to have on the private sector. First of all, you've got a lot of people now that are making $7.50, $8, $9, $10 an hour, right? They're going to quit those jobs to get $15 an hour for the government, right? So now if you're a private employer, you're going to have to pay your workers at least $15 an hour, probably more because, you know, if, you, if, if you're working for a private company, you still got to show up on time and you might get fired. So why not just work for the government where you can show up whenever you want? So in order for a private employer to get somebody not to take a cushy $15 an hour no-show government job, maybe they'll have to pay $20 an hour to get somebody to actually have to do work. Right? There's got to be something in it for having to be responsible and actually do real work rather than make work for the government. So the labor costs would skyrocket. Well, then what would happen to prices? Prices would skyrocket. But of course, most of the employers, right, rather than pay this $20 an hour, they're going to outsource, they're going to automate, right? So lots of people who currently have jobs are going to get fired. And so now those are even more people who are going to show up at the government demanding to be paid $15 an hour. But where is the government going to get the money to pay the salary of all these workers, especially when so many people who used to be employed in the private sector and were paying payroll taxes and income taxes, they no longer have jobs. They now want to work for the government. Remember, the government doesn't collect taxes from its own employees. Now, of course, yeah, they pretend that they do, right? If you work for the government and the government pays you money, right? If you're a federal employee and the government pays you money and then they deduct taxes from your pay, you're not really paying taxes to the government. The government is just taking back a little bit of what it gave you, right? So if I work for the government, let's say they, they pay me $50,000 a year and then they take $10,000 back in taxes. But what if they just gave me $40,000 a year and, paid no, and, and charged me no tax, right? It's the same thing. So when the government takes taxes from its own workers, it's not getting money that it didn't already have. The only real tax base is the private sector, where the government is taxing the paychecks that it didn't personally write the check for. So when it taxes a private worker, the government is actually getting revenue. When it simply takes back some of the revenue that it paid its own workers, there's no taxes there, right? I mean, imagine if everybody worked for the government and nobody worked for the private sector. Could the government collect taxes? No. There's, there'd be nothing to collect. And that is actually what would happen here. I think if this law were to get passed, pretty soon they would drive out all private employees. I think everybody would want to work for the government. There'd be no one left working in the private sector, so there'd be nobody to tax. And so that means all these $15 an hour uh, jobs with benefits would be worthless because you'd have nothing to buy with your wages because there'd be no real productivity in the economy. We would have a complete socialist society, right? Or communist guy. Everybody would be working for the government. The government would have to decide what everybody does. They would be in charge of allocating all the resources. You do this, you produce that. I mean, it'd be a complete command economy and it would be a complete disaster. I mean, do you think Bernie Sanders and, you know, 
any Congress that might pass this lunacy, do you think our government would do a better job of managing the economy than the Politburo did of managing the Soviet economy? Do you think they'd be any more successful? I doubt it. It doesn't work. You know, when you live in a communist country or people that lived in, you know, Soviet Russia, right, everybody had jobs, right? There was no unemployment. I mean, that was one of the things that they used to, you know, in their propaganda, they talked about how bad it was in America because there were so many people who were unemployed, right? But they didn't have any unemployment problem in Russia because everybody had a job. Yes, everybody had a job, but they had to wait in line for hours to get a loaf of bread, right? Because the jobs meant nothing. Having a job, what, what did it do for you? It didn't do anything because there wasn't the productivity. It was inefficient. Nothing was made uh, you know, efficiently, and there were no market signals telling uh, you know, producers what to make. Right? It was all government bureaucrats trying to figure out you know, what, what should be made and, and what should be bought and who should buy it and, and who should make it, and government deciding. This is your job, and that's your job. I mean, it wasn't like there was a free market where people did what they did best. You did what the government assigned you, right? They, they would, you know, and a lot of people, of course, they, they were in the army and they worked for government. I mean, it, it doesn't matter. So this is the type of society that Bernie Sanders actually wants to create. Now, whether he can think of it or not, oh, it sounds all great. Yes, the government's going to give everybody a job, guarantee everybody a job who doesn't have one. But jobs can never be guaranteed. Right? You've got to earn a job. You've got to, you've got to provide value to your employer. Right? As I said, if your job is guaranteed, then what incentive do you have to provide any value? Now, I don't know. Maybe you can say, well, I mean, maybe people will get a raise and earn uh, more than $15 an hour. But a lot of these people are incompetent. I mean, how are they even going to get raises? You know, and again, if you can get guaranteed $15 an hour for a lot of people, hey, that's it. That's all they need. Right. And especially if you don't have to show up, maybe you get a government job for $15 an hour. And then when you don't show up, you do something else under the table and collect some extra money because you can't get fired uh, from uh, from your government job. But, you know, who knows? Because I think we're going to have a very left leaning uh, president in, in 2020. It could, I mean, it's probably not going to be Bernie Sanders. I mean, this, I don't, you know, he's pretty old, but it could certainly be somebody that Bernie Sanders anoints as, you know, his. His, his protege, his heir apparent, I mean, he could bless somebody and now he's the kingmaker of the Democratic Party that is now the Socialist Party. But the fact that anybody, any elected official could sign on to such sheer inner nonsense. I mean, forget about the stupidity of this law and how easy it is to look at the unintended consequences and how the entire country would be bankrupt. The trillions of dollars that would have to be spent out of where? I mean, they can't tax it. The taxpayers are going to be vanishing. They're all going to be joining the government. It's like you've got a number of people who work for government or on the dole, right? They're on Social Security or welfare, and, you know, they're all in a cart. And then you have a bunch of people in the private sector who are working. They're pulling the cart. But what Bernie Sanders wants to do is create such powerful incentives for the people who are currently pulling the cart to jump in the cart and, and ride in it with everybody else. There's nobody left to pull. Everybody can't be in the cart expecting it to go. But that's what would happen if this asinine bill ever became law. But these congressmen, senators, you know, they don't even see this. I mean, how could they be so dumb as to support something so completely idiotic? And it's so obvious how much damage it would do. Now, of course, maybe they're just proposing it knowing that it's never going to pass. Maybe they realize how idiotic it is. 
but they know that there'll be some idiot voter who doesn't know, who's like, oh, this guy wants to guarantee me a $15 an hour job. Right now, I'm only working $8 an hour. So if I could just vote for more Democrats, they're going to give me this guaranteed $15 an hour. So it's just kind of, you know, a, a carrot that they can dangle out there in front of unsuspecting voters who actually think this nonsense could pass. So maybe they know, look, this is never going to happen. It's complete insanity. But the voters are too dumb to know that. So let's let the voters think that if they vote more Democrats, that they're going to get these guaranteed $15 an hour jobs with fringe benefits and health care and all this stuff. And a lot of voters will, will be dumb enough to buy it. But will a Congress actually ever be dumb enough to pass it? I mean, I, I doubt it. I mean, even if we got a socialist president and a bunch of socialists in Congress, would they actually want to do this? Because if they passed it, the economy would completely implode. I mean, it's going to implode anyway, whether they pass it or not. But even if we had a sound economy, which we don't, right, anyone dumb enough to pass something like this, I mean, it's all going to fall apart quickly. It's not going to take a long time. So it would be obvious whose fault it was. So I don't think that anybody would actually be dumb enough to do this, right? They, they want to dangle it out there so the voters, right, who don't know any better, think that they might get it. So it's a great campaign issue to rally around, but it would be actual political suicide to actually pass it. Now, I read another article too this week about the escalating cost of raising children, just like the cost of childcare is absolutely soaring. And of course it is. I mean, that's why so many people have so few kids now. And a lot of people don't have any kids at all. And by the time they have kids, they're much older because they can't afford it. And this is all a byproduct of our falling standard of living. It's not that raising kids is more expensive. It's that people can no longer afford it because of the declining real value of their wages and their salaries. And that they're spending all this money on taxes and they're not as productive. And that's why the apparent cost of raising children is soaring. But what's really happening is their parents are getting poorer and poorer and poorer. And so paying for children becomes a much bigger burden when you have fewer resources to cover the cost. Now, this doesn't even take into account college, right? I mean, because college is actually skyrocketed. But this is just getting kids through 18, right? That the costs have just skyrocketed. And, you know, of course, one of the first things I'm thinking of is, you know, well, I guess it's a good thing there's no inflation, right? Because imagine if we actually had inflation, then the costs would really be going up. But of course, the fact that they are going up so much is more of an indication that the true rate of inflation is being understated by the government. Because why is it more expensive to raise kids? Well, it costs more to feed them, costs more to clothe them, it costs more to house them, uh, it costs more to take care of their teeth, their doctor bills. I mean, everything about raising kids is more expensive because of inflation, right? The government is debasing the value of our money. And so prices are rising and wages are not keeping pace with it, right? Because of all the taxes and all the regulations that is undermining labor productivity, the cost of labor, the price of labor is not rising as fast as the price of all the things that you need to buy with the wages that you earn by by selling your labor. So that's really what's going on here. But, you know, one of the funny things, if you want to think about it, because you've got all these economists now who claim 
that we need rising prices, right? That if we didn't have rising prices, nobody would buy stuff, right? That's why they're so afraid of deflation. Oh, if prices fall, people will stop buying, right? Because they'll be, you know, they won't want to buy because they're, they're going to wait for prices to fall indefinitely. And so the economy will grind to a halt. And so we have to make sure that prices are rising just so people will keep spending. Well, if that were true, right, then children being more expensive to raise would be a positive, right? Because that would mean Parents would want to have children because they wouldn't want to have children if the cost of having children was going down because they would just wait. They would just wait to have children even later when it would be even cheaper, right? If that was the, the, the same analogy. But of course, it's not. It's the rising cost of children that is causing families not to have them, right? Or to have fewer children than they would like to have because they can't afford it. If the cost of rearing and you know, raising children were going down, well, then we would have bigger families. I mean, more people would have more children. That is how the market reacts to falling prices. If something is more affordable, you will do more of it, right? So if prices are falling, you're going to buy more stuff. If prices are rising, you're going to buy less stuff. If the cost of raising children is going up, then you're going to raise fewer children. If the cost of raising children is going down, then you're going to have more children. I mean, it's it's just an economic reality and a decision that people made. But again, as I said earlier, it's not really that the cost of raising children is going up. It's just that Americans are poorer and their money doesn't go as far. And so it looks like it's more expensive to raise children. It's not. It's just that after inflation and taxes and with a less efficient economy, you don't have the resources to raise them. Now, finally, I want to just uh, you know talk a little bit again about Bitcoin because I had this interesting uh, conversation yesterday with a one of the guys that moved to uh, Puerto Rico uh, because of uh, a Bitcoin. And, you know, a lot of people have moved here thinking that they can move here with, you know, the profits that they've already earned, right? On the, Because Bitcoin was way up and all the other cryptocurrencies were way up last year. And a lot of people thought, well, hey, they can come move here and sell and, and, and pay no capital gains. And that's just not true, right? They would still owe the capital gains on all the unrealized gains that occurred prior to their moving to Puerto Rico. It's only the gains in the future that would be uh, not subject to a capital gains tax. But this guy understood that. He knew that. And he told me, you know, he had millions of dollars uh, worth of, um, of Bitcoin. And the reason he's here is not to shield the gains he already has, but to shield the gains that he expects to have, because he is extremely wildly optimistic on Bitcoin, thinks he's going to make tens or hundreds of millions of dollars and that's why he's here, because he doesn't want to pay taxes on his hundreds of millions of dollars. But what he told me is he's been buying Bitcoin since Bitcoin was $100. So he didn't get in at the very bottom. But obviously, you know, it's 9000 He started buying at 100 But he's told me he bought some coins above 10000 So, he, you know, his average cost is obviously higher than the $100 that he bought his first Bitcoin. But he said he hasn't sold any. And that... From his perspective, this is what he told me. He says, you don't make money when you sell Bitcoin. You make money when you buy it, right? Every time you buy it, you make money. Because why? Because it's guaranteed to go higher. As far as he's concerned, there is no way. So the more Bitcoin he buys, the more he's going to make. And if he sells any, well, he's just missing out, right? So he doesn't want to make the mistake of selling. He's one of these holders who is basically going to hold forever. And it's good to get into the mentality of the way they're thinking. And even if they doubled or tripled from here, he still wouldn't sell. He'd still be buying. And I asked him, I said, well, what are you going to do? What if the high is in for Bitcoin? What if it never makes a new high and it just goes down from here? 
you know, are, is there a point where you're going to sell? And he, he's, no, there is no point that I would ever sell. So I said, well, so you're willing to let Bitcoin go all the way back down to zero and lose all of the paper profits that you have. And he basically said, yeah, I mean, I'll go down with the ship if that's what happens. But of course, he doesn't think there's any chance that's going to happen. So that's why he doesn't have a plan as to, you know, how he would mitigate uh, the damages and, and, and preserve what profits he has or eventually uh, cut his losses. But he did tell me that he has enough other money and enough other resources that even if all of his Bitcoin millions vanished, that he's fine. Right. So he's not going to you know, he's not betting everything on it. But what he has in there. He's willing to ride it to zero if need be. And that is exactly what a lot of the people want, right? Because all the people who are holding this cryptocurrency, come rain or shine, that no matter what, they're never going to sell, that is creating an artificial scarcity that enables the price to rise. And other people who are a little shrewder, I think, who are taking advantage of the fact that so many people are not selling and they're selling. Right. But in order for those people to sell, you need to have a lot of people who won't sell because otherwise you'd have too many people uh, competing with one another and, and the market wouldn't be going up. So that is the mentality that a lot of people have. And that is exactly what the people who are selling need. And they count on that and they try to nurture that. Uh, and, you know, we talked for a while about all the reasons that he believes that Bitcoin is, you know, you know, the, the pin and not the bubble. And he eventually thinks we're all going to be using Bitcoin, that the dollar is going to be gone, the euro is going to be gone. I mean, or maybe they'll still be here, but somehow they're going to be on the blockchain and that we're all going to be using Bitcoin just like we're all using the Internet. And, um, and you know, he just seems like a smart guy, an intelligent guy, but he's, he's just so caught up in this. And I'm sure there are a lot of other people like that. Right. I mean, he's not unique in this respect. There are a lot of people. And, you know, he does agree that a lot of the other cryptocurrencies are a bunch of nonsense and they're going to go to zero. But for some reason, none of that applies to Bitcoin. He doesn't even like, you know, Bitcoin cash or he thinks that's nothing. You know, I've, you know, I've talked to people who think Bitcoin cash is better than Bitcoin, but no, 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 it, that's a bunch of nonsense. You just got to have Bitcoin because he thinks that Bitcoin represents the real store of value, that Bitcoin is the actual digital gold, basically because that's what everybody's going to want. And what he doesn't, you know, understand is, well, what if people don't want it anymore? Right. What if, you know, and, and, and he just can't envision a situation where that would ever occur, that he thinks it's so entrenched that that will never happen. And he still believes it's very early. Like this is the beginning. This is we're barely scratched the surface. We're, we're so close to the bottom that we have so much to go. And, you know, it was it was, in, you know, it was good to hear the perspective to really, you know, see how committed people are uh, to to this belief. And then, you know, when you see that, you have an understanding. But I'm just looking at it, you know, from an, from an, from an outsider. And again, whenever you're trapped in a bubble, you never see it, right? And he's, you know, when I listen to all his why this is different and why Bitcoin is different than this bubble or that bubble or that bubble, every time there's a bubble, every time, the people who are in it will tell you that this time it's different and why what they're experiencing is not a bubble, right? But... That happens in every bubble, right? There's never a bubble where people don't say, well, this time it's different. And this is why this is not a bubble. Yes, I understand that there were bubbles in the past, but here's what's different about this. So that is what every bubble has in common. I mean, there's no way that you have a bubble where nobody says, hey, this is a bubble, right? Because it's going to be so enormous. You're always going to have people who are pointing out that it's a bubble. And then you always have to have the people who are caught up in it who are convinced that it's not. Now, they know there's been bubbles in the past, 
So they have to rationalize why what's happening now is not a bubble because it's different, even though they know that it's different this time is probably the most dangerous words in investing, because no matter how different you think it is, it's never different. It's always the same.